You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. But not before you sign our Bible. Uh, hello, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Well, welcoming you again to another episode of the Sectarian View Review Podcast. Just gave away the topic of the show a little bit. Uh, as you know, we're from time to time given to cover a, a current event or two. And uh, this week, uh, we're going to be talking about the recent kind of controversy when uh, President Trump signed some Bibles in Alabama. And there was uh, a bit of a Twitter outrage and a Facebook outrage. And I kind of personally got caught up on that on my own Facebook page, thanks to a, a particular <laughs> troll <laughs> who sometimes gives me a hard time when I publish certain things. Um, and so, it, it, but ultimately it gave me the idea that maybe this is actually an interesting theological conversation to have. And so I kind of put a call out there and I was uh, lucky enough to get a couple of great guys to, uh, to volunteer to come on and talk about this. So what they backed out and we showed up. <laughs> Yes. And then I was, and then I was <laughs> cursed with having YouTube bombs on the show in their place. No, I'm just kidding. Um, starting with that voice, uh, welcoming back to the show, uh, the great Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist podcast of soon to be professor of English at Emmanuel College. Yes, yes, yes. I got my uh, promotion letter from the board of trustees. So my pay raise starts in June. All right. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the big time. Um, although yeah. you're, you're bigger time than I am. I'm still assistant. So um, and, <laughs> anyway, so how's everything going down there? Oh, it's going well. You know, we are uh, in the downhill slope of the semester and, you know, uh, I actually this uh, week I'm doing evening events, you know, uh, I've been invited to a couple uh, dorm events and things like that, so I've kind of gotten into the that segment of my career where now the I've been around long enough that students want me to come and be on event panels. Fortnite so, tournament is that what it is? No, no, Fortnite <laughs> tournament. But, uh, uh, God questions, things like that. Oh, okay. Although now that you mention that, uh, I also did get invited and I went on the uh, the Spawn Point YouTube channel run by. Uh, Jared Rhodes, a.k.a. Goof. I remember Goof. <laughs> and so here in a little while, I'm sure I'll be posting links on the uh, Christian Humanist page. Uh, there will be YouTube footage of me playing WWE 2K17. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's what you know. If you start your own Patreon account for the show, that would be the bonus um, stuff that you could you could give to uh, to to patrons for the, the CHP. Oh, that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll say one more thing about that, and then I'll let, let you get on to serious things. But uh, <laughs> one thing that they did before I showed up at um, you know Jared's apartment was they created a character for me. And that will be worth looking up the YouTube channel on its own. <laughs> All right. I'm enticed. You've got me. Um, uh, absolutely. I'm totally there. So, uh, well, welcome back, Nathan. Thanks for uh, volunteering to jump in with this one. Um, and joining Nathan and I, once again, uh, from pop, pop culture and theology is Matthew Brake. How's it going, Matthew? Good. Uh, it's great hearing you guys talk about your secured faculty positions uh, i was like we have we have everything represented here full or associate professor and then assistant professor and then 
exploited adjunct labor. So it's been good. <laughs> I'm ecumenical in that way. Um, no, um, no, it's, uh, but in all reality, there's very little secure about higher education these days. Oh, man. <laughs> People who have tenure, I mean, their institutions are going down. So yeah, I think everybody's becoming aware that we're all sort of in the same boat, but um, that is by no means to, uh, to minimize the, uh, the exploited nature of adjunct later. And, and I know that, you know, off the air, you were just telling me that you just took on like a half semesters worth, like four semesters worth of work and a half a semester to do. Oh here. gosh. Yeah. I was going to say, I got a promotion too. I was given more work <laughs> period. <laughs> in addition to all the great editorial work that you're doing, right. Uh, in, in publishing uh, the pop culture and theology, popular culture and theology series and stuff. So mm-hmm. um, a couple of great luminaries here to talk about this. Both of them know much more about the, I think, the theological underpinnings of these issues than I do certainly. And so I kind of want to see, I see this show as being kind of a learning experience for me, me asking a lot of questions and, and posing for poorly formed opinions about things. But, um, but you guys actually, I think know what you're talking about. And so um, I appreciate you being here. So um, let me just sort of uh, get into the show proper here and just let me um, watch my plosives. First of all, I'm sorry. I keep popping into the mic there. I'll, uh, I'll move to the left a little, but the, uh, uh, the, the whole thing started in review. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That is true. The whole thing started a couple few weeks ago. There was a a series of tragic uh, tornadoes in Alabama and, uh, and president Mm -hmm. Trump and his wife uh, went down there to comfort the, 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 the community. And he was at some church, uh, I think a Southern Baptist church down there. And I think it was a 12 year old boy started this, uh, or a 10 year old boy, um, uh, asked him to sign his Bible. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. there's this mass of people, um, in front of uh, president Trump and he's signing the covers of these Bibles with this thing that is not even recognizably a signature. It's, it's a series of, <laughs> of humps on, a, on, a, on the front of the Bible in, in the Sharpie. And so uh, that spilled over uh, once the pictures became available. Um, their sort of indignant Twitter uh, took took exception mm-hmm. to it, right, and uh, and started uh, just forming opinions that this is a ridiculous thing to do. Um, and as it turns out, it it may be a ridiculous thing to do. That's what we're going to talk about today. But it is not uncommon. This is something that kind of happens, particularly particularly in the South. Uh, this seems to be a, a feature of Southern Christianity on some level. And so, um, mm-hmm. and the con- so the conversation, as most of them are, is actually a little more complicated than it appears on the surface. Now, I just want to lay my cards out on the table. I was super uncomfortable with it and I don't understand this practice. Um, uh, and I think there are ways in which I do understand practices like this one, but this particular mm-hmm. practice seemed kind of weird to me. And, but there's a lot of political baggage that goes along with this conversation here too. So, um, that's the, the, the main gist of the story. Am I leaving any kind of important details out that you guys could think of? Uh, nothing I'm aware of, Matt. Do you have any Nope. I was going to say, I basically read the, you know, the digest version of the story that you just narrated. So yeah, that's my starting point. Yeah. There's not much more to it. And frankly, the reason this started is like I said, I posted a, a kind of a snarky thing on my own personal Facebook page. <laughs> I think my, my, my only commentary was, yeah, that's normal or something like that. And then someone, uh, uh-huh. someone who's a, a diehard Trump supporter who seemingly only comments on my page to like a picture of my children or to tell me I'm a terrible person for not liking Trump. Um, uh, she chimed in and started this 
as she is wont to do, <laughs> this elaborate conversation on my Facebook page. Um, and, and then, and then there, and then Ed Stetzer, I think, uh, from Wheaton College, he had a, a tweet in which he said that this is being blown out of proportion. He's been asked to do this sort of thing. It's very common in, in the South. And so I posted that thinking, well, I think it's still kind of silly. I think it is an interesting theological conversation to have. And that's where this whole thing sort of starts right and so um mm-hmm. nathan um is much more he's much better at this whole podcasting thing than i am <laughs> and so he actually started a google doc to organize this conversation a little bit and so i want to give him credit for uh kind of taking the lead on the the organization of this uh of this conversation so um one of the things that you kind of laid out at the top nathan was this phenomenology of autographs and you think yeah. it's, it's an important aspect of this before we get to the theology even and so do you want to talk a little bit about that well, sure. So, I mean, the word autograph, you know, is just a, a compound Greek word. You know, it's the writing of one's own self. Uh, and, you know, it has its its roots, you know, as a practice in, you know, legal and banking and those kinds of official documents, right? Uh, the, the signature is a sort of deferred presence, uh, as I invoke the ghost of Jacques Derrida. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, the idea is that, you know, the item has some kind of, you know, value in its own right. Uh, and then the signature, uh, is not, you know, the presence of the person there, but it is, you know, as I said, something one removed from it. So, you know, uh, to, to slide from Derrida to Karl Marx, you know, there is no use value to an autograph, but you know, when I was a kid, I collected baseball cards. And one of the things we would often do is mail off baseball cards of prominent players uh, to spring training, uh, because the players during that time had some more downtime, so they would be more inclined to sign their baseball cards and send them back. And I have a number of, you know, signed baseball cards, Andre Dawson, Mark McGuire, you know, people who were big there in the late 80s. Nice. Uh, and who later got discovered to be steroid abusers. <laughs> but I didn't know that at the time. Andre right? Dawson never did, right? Um, no, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, the, ha- the Hawk just had the swing. But... Right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in that case, I mean, what an autograph does, even if you're not sentimentally attached to a player, right? You know, I mean, I never was much of an Oakland A's fan, certainly not a St. Louis Cardinals fan. But I do know that as soon as Mark McGuire signed that card, it tripled in value, right? I could have, before the steroid crisis, uh, you know, gotten a lot more money out of that card with the autograph than without it, right? And so, I mean, we've got that monetary value. We've also got the sentimental value. I've got a few books that the author has autographed, right? You know, Walter Brueggemann signed my copy of Theology of the Old Testament, which is one of the books that really shaped me intellectually. So that one's very valuable to me. Uh, You also get, you know, uh, one phenomenon that occurred to me is the sort of wall of autographed photographs that you sometimes see in restaurants, right? And these will be celebrities who have come there. And again, you could just, you know, photograph the celebrity in the restaurant, but instead the practice tends to be their headshot with an autograph on it, right? Yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring this up is just to note that there is no single phenomenon that we call autographing. So Ed Stetzer is right. There is a kind of autograph Bible that makes a lot of sense because it's embedded in a certain kind of narrative. Um, but this differs from that enough that, you know, it seems worth mentioning so i mean those you know those examples are just ones that i came up with quickly i mean you know as far as you guys and autograph culture i mean what's your main connection with the autograph as a phenomenon 
Matthew, why don't you go ahead? Um, I don't have anything to say necessarily about autograph as a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I guess for me, the issue, because uh, eventually we're going to probably have some really cool conversations about Christian nationalism. Yes. Oh, sure. Um, but uh, in the case of uh, Trump's autographing, I guess I'm still, I, I'm always just amazed at Christians in the U.S. Um, not seeing what I see when I look at Trump when like not being as disturbed by um, how he comes across as a person and mm-hmm. when they find out about these scandals and paying off porn stars and all these things I'm just I'm just surprised at their willingness to defend him because it feels like it's not about because um, remember when Bill Clinton had the Lewinsky mm-hmm. affair Oh, sure. And Jennifer Flowers before that and Paula Jones before that. Yes. Yeah. Like, it seemed like conservative critiques of the Clintons were really just about trying to discredit them because they wanted abortion to be criminalized. So they were basically willing to mm-hmm. jump on the bandwagon of critique of the other side to make that happen. Yeah. And it's amazing how during that time there were all these critiques about how terrible it was that Bill Clinton did this act in the Oval mm-hmm. Office, the mm-hmm. type of person he was even before he came into office, having seemingly numerous scandals, numerous affairs, and everyone harped on those things. But uh, I'm less inclined uh, to believe that um, those critiques were as righteous as they wanted to make them sound like I remember being at Acquire the Fire, which was this teen conference based. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> the fire. and Ron was going on these extended rants about how Mr. President, you've corrupted the innocence of a whole generation of teens, mm-hmm. and yeah. like the fact that Bill Clinton had an affair in the Oval Office was a big deal. And now that we find out Trump has done or is doing similar things. And not too short of a period before taking office, at least. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're willing to excuse those things and say stuff that Democrats were saying about Clinton, that that personal conduct doesn't matter as long as he's being competent. And no one stops to look at the hypocrisy of how you're switching your position just because it's your guy now. Like if you're and Mm -hmm. I understand everyday people doing that if their allegiance is to a political party. I don't understand how the church, which should be the which should at least, uh, it doesn't have to be the moral conscience of a nation because that's still a form of civic religion, which I think is BS. But um, but it's the goal of the church to speak truth to power no matter who's there and to do it mm-hmm. consistently. So if you really think it's wrong for your leaders to be these type of people doing these types of acts, regardless of whether their positions on abortion or taxes or whatever, um, mm-hmm. you can be consistent in that critique and not be afraid that if you critique them, your guy will lose power, your party will lose power. And it seems like that's all that's happening. And so people, Mm -hmm. rather than waking up to their own confirmation bias, they would rather double down and anoint Trump uh, as a Cyrus figure, you know, who (laughs) returns the uh, Jewish people to their homeland or a Queen Esther figure who is born now to save God's people for such a time as this mm-hmm. rather than being honest about uh, the type of person that he is. And I think it, it's not about, it's not righteousness. It's, it's power. 
It's all right. about. And, and, and I by think... the way, as someone who teaches ancient texts, no one knew who the heck Cyrus was before 2016. <laughs> I just, I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I, I'm just going to go full hipster on this. I, I was into Cyrus before it was mainstream. <laughs> they went into the deep tracks of to. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's right. Well, well, Nathan, at that point, you can just say, well, I mean, because we're talking about a lot of prosperity gospel Pentecostal preachers who were on his advisory committee. At that point, we'll just say it doesn't matter that people didn't know who he was because. You know, it's like, oh, you're discovering God's prophetic word for the moment. <laughs> yeah, so. there you go. It's there very handy. Go. Yeah, and, and I think, but what you're getting at, though, is a source of a lot of the the reaction to this one way or the other, right? And <laughs> and I think some of the the Christian reaction against this, and there's been um, um, some pretty uh, a variety of articles that a lot of people are, unco- a lot of even Trump supporters are kind of uncomfortable with this act. Um, maybe people outside of that cultural context of the South. But, and, and I think that part of that is, is it feels like doing this drags the sacred tradition out of its sacred realm and drags it into a different kind of realm, one like defined mm-hmm, by celebrity, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so I think that, that that is one thing. And incidentally, as you were talking about how, you know, people used to rail on the, the Clinton scandal in the Oval Office, I recently read where Trump, when he gives tours of the White House, actually adds that to the tour. Like, here's where Clinton and Lewinsky were. <laughs> so he's actually... No. Oh, man. <laughs> thing that there's... Apparently, he takes you to the spot that it happened or something. Um, and so, yeah, um, which I think is just hilarious. But um, but anyway, um, and, and very predictable, actually. But um, let me... I do have a couple things to add about the whole authorship uh, or the autograph thing. And I think there are mm-hmm. kind of two components to autographs that I think are both somewhat relevant to this discussion. Okay. One of which is that um, uh, autographs are sort of like you, there's like a legal sense to it. Like you're sort of, it's a stand in for your, um, your person on some level mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. makes you accountable um, for the document that you're signing. Right. And so I'm, I'm often um, uh, uh, reminded back in like authorship studies and we talk about copyright and stuff. Um, copyright was kind of one of its first uses was not just to give people like credit for doing stuff, but also to hold them accountable for doing it <laughs> so that okay. you, could, you could be punished for, uh, for what you wrote. Right. Um, and so I think that there's a sense in which that kind of legal function of autographs um, is interesting when you think about Trump signing a Bible, because from that perspective, he is therefore somehow accountable. Uh, he's like an authority figure for what that Bible represents, right? And I think that's an element that makes me personally troubled. And a lot of the folks who commented on my own Facebook page about this um, said similar things like, this guy is so abjectly horrible. He has no business touching a Bible. He should burst into flames, whatever. Um, and so, um, uh, so that's one component of it. And the other component is sort of the celebrity thing, right? And so the, uh, and, and I have books that I've had signed too. And it's one thing, like I met David Mamet once and he signed a book and, and it's just his signature, right? Um, and then like I met Michael Shabon and he writes this really nice note with his signature. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Daryl Horn did the same thing for me. Um, James K.A. Smith, when I met him, he he signed a really nice note and and his signature in his own book right um and so mm-hmm. that's one component of it is that that's sort of like a personal like connection you have to between the author their work and their work's meaning in your life right and so i think that mm-hmm. these are uh that's one function of 
Bible signing that I could kind of be okay with. If Billy Graham is your guy, whatever, um, uh-huh. and Billy Graham signs the inside cover of your Bible, like, oh, like for you, like as a that's sort of like you joining a community of worship, right? Uh, and that to me okay. seems like a different thing than having Billy Graham just sign his name on the cover of a Bible, let alone Donald Trump sign his name on the cover of a Bible. All uh, right. So what, what would be the difference then? I want to hear you explore that a little bit. I, I so the, the, the inside outside cover. I mean, that distinction. Um, gosh, well, that, now I might want to save some of that because, uh, because I feel like there's some discussion to be had about the sacredness of the printed text itself, whether that is actually sacred okay. or not. Right. But mm-hmm. um, just the, the quickness with which you just want the celebrity's autograph on a piece of paper that happens to be your Bible seems to me different than okay. kind of the personal moment in which whoever um, Billy Graham, I don't care what name plug your preacher, Tim Keller, whoever, right. Um, mm-hmm. Signs a personal note to you, which sort of like brings you together in the text itself to me, like symbolically that sort of represents something kind of um, like much more kind of personal and meaningful um, and still mm-hmm. elevates the text itself as the thing that's bringing the two people together. Stick stamping the, the autograph on the cover, particularly just feels mm-hmm. like it's relegating the text, the, the, the thing that holds you, that binds you together to some sort of, incidental and not something that's, that's essential. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, one, one thing that I think about it, right. I'm looking right now, hanging up in the the wall here of Inferno studios at Mount Aloysius college. I've got <laughs> a, a, a t-shirt signed by Billy Bragg and, um, and, and uh, Joe Henry. Uh, I went to see them in concert and, and they, uh, I've, I've always been a huge Billy Bragg fan. So we got our picture taken with them and my wife had this all sort of designed and framed. And so I bought the t-shirt thinking I would wear it, but when Billy Bragg and Joe Henry signed it, <laughs> I just put it on in a, in a case, right? Because it represents some sort of special like moment. Right. And so, and now okay. I'm not wearing the t-shirt anymore. Like the t-shirt is now just sort of a, a, a commemoration. And I think the same thing, kind of happens when Trump signs the Bible. It's like it's no longer the original thing. It's just a vehicle to hold the signature of the celebrity. And, and I think that that's... Although um, if he came and visited your church, and, and again, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to you know contradict... I'm willing you know, to hear, hear the pushback. But the I, I, I am interested in complicating it because if you know uh, you think of a, a printed Bible and you think of a, you know, I, I forget if we said, was it a 10-year-old kid that brought it? To be signed the first time, you know, I mean, to me, I mean, that is more analogous to the kid at the ballpark bringing a baseball card to be signed by the shortstop. Yeah. Than it is to, you know, the author signing the book. And but I mean, it's flabbergasting to me to think that was the only piece of paper available then if you just wanted the if you just wanted the signature. Right. Um, Surely in that building, there was something else. I was driving. This is a, a funny story. When I was a kid, Don King is from Cleveland, mm-hmm. Ohio, and um, he had a training camp in this little country town out in the middle of nowhere called Orwell. Um, and uh, and Mike Tyson was training there, and he ended up like living near there. And I'm driving through this little tiny town, and there's Mike Tyson standing 
on a fence or sitting on a fence outside Dairy Queen in this little 200 person town. And so we pulled over. The only piece of paper I had was like a receipt from a video channel from a video store. And so I got an autograph from Mike Tyson on a little piece of receipt because that was the piece of paper. Um, like surely there was some other piece of paper they could have used to get the autographs. And so they, okay. they All were, right. they were using the Bible specifically as the vehicle, mm-hmm. like in purposefully. And, and, and so that's my pushback on the pushback a little bit. Um, okay. It's it just all sort right, of a little right. un- unbelievable, but, um, and I didn't want this to be me just sort of like giving my opinions about things, but I do think that the dual nature of is Trump someone who's authorized to be a representative of what's in that book. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's kind of, that's one aspect of this, um, the autograph, the authority that comes with an autograph and, and then B, what is the role of celebrity in, in Christian culture and where can that become poisonous? That's mm-hmm. sort of the other mm-hmm. angle that I, I kind of see this intersecting with Matthew, you want mm-hmm. to say something? Yeah. So I guess, you know, one thing we need to acknowledge is, uh, and as the article I linked pointed out, it's not weird that people have signed Bibles, right? Um, because they have, and Billy Graham is a good example. Like you have all these celebrities who've met Billy Graham and he usually signs a Bible. Like I think he gave one to Muhammad Ali and, mm-hmm. uh, Graham signed it and he was like, Hey, I can't read this. Can you make this more clear? Cause <laughs> I want to be able to tell people Billy Graham actually did this. I, I think that's the story. Um, so I, I take your point about on the one hand, Graham makes a little more sense as sort of a sacred figure, although some of that, like even then Christian celebrity is still there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh, sure, sure. You also have uh, family members or youth pastors or pastors who will, you know, if there's a new convert or someone they've mentored, they might give them a Mm -hmm. Bible and say, I'm so proud of the journey. I hope this text finds you well. Like I think Sigmund Freud's father wrote some sort of note to him or maybe inside like the family bible that he hoped this um bible the this uh would help his son along somehow yeah and when i graduated from high school my youth group leader did that i got a bible and there was a really nice note you know and 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 that seems to me legitimate for some reason but yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's helpful to think about how, uh, again, as the article pointed out, other presidents have signed Bibles before, um, FDR, and um, that was the one example. I forget, it lists someone else there, I forget who it was, but um, you almost have to wonder, if it wasn't Trump, would we care? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, my other question would be, like, how conservatives would react if Bill Clinton or Barack Obama had signed covers to the Bible. Like for, for me, it's that hypocrisy factor that if it was someone other than their guy, they wouldn't there. There's no principled stand here about whether or not president should sign Bibles. Yeah. It seems like it has more to do with whether it's our guy or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and with that, um, in the case of Trump, you know, you have to wonder, would we be, uh, would this be a talking point for us? And for a lot of people, for me, it's hard because I am biased in that I'll say, like, I can't believe that people don't look at Trump and see why this is a problem. Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. Like, like that's that's where I'm at. I'm, I, I feel like I'm under no illusions. Like, I'm Anabaptist enough where I don't have to support a corrupt candidate because it'll support my power platform. Yeah. Like, I'm able to say, like, Jesus is not, um, he's not a Republican and he's not a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And it's foolish to think that either one of those positions fully represents the kingdom of 
the kingdom of God. And I'm enough of a leftist to think that, you know, even if Democrats are more compassionate, they still fall into certain militaristic neoliberal traps. And um, so for me, I feel like I'm able to stand back and critique Trump somewhat objectively. But I, I can't believe that people um, fool themselves about the quality of his character such that they would see this practice and not understand why it's a problem. Okay. Right. And, and I should go ahead and say, Danny, that I mean, I, I was trying to bring up, you know, the particular case of the 10 year old because, you know, I was 10 year olds, 10 years old in 1987. And if I had seen Ronald Reagan, you know, I would have brought him something to sign because he was basically, you know, a public figure the way that, you know, Andre Dawson was a public figure, you know, right. you know, if my 40 year old self ran into, you know, a time traveling Ronald Reagan, I, I would not want his autograph because I know about the history and I know about the politics and, you know, I have certain convictions that I didn't have when I was 10. So, I mean, I certainly don't want to let the 30 and 35 and 40 year olds in line behind the 10 year old off the hook. Yeah. But I do want to say that, you know, uh, if indeed, you know, this, this, uh, piece is accurate and it began with a 10 year old kid, I'm, I'm not inclined to pile on the 10 year old kid. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm not sure that we should include him in the criticism. He's not necessarily accountable for, but I mean, there's images of like masses of grownups. Yeah, uh, that part. Yeah, this, that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm all, I'm all about that critique. Yeah. So, so, so Danny, I want to, I want to come back to this idea. Like if it was a precedent other than Trump, would this be as big of a, a talking, like, would we, would we even think to be having this conversation right now? It's a really good question. And I read somewhere, I did a lot of reading on this and I'll throw up a bunch of links. Matthew, you sent me one and, and there's a few I found. John Fia linked to something that he's quoted in um, mm -hmm. by uh, Joanna Piacenza um, that came out that said that this is, you know, kind of largely seen in negative ways in the evangelical community even. So I'll, I'll provide some links. But some of the things I've read, I, I came across somewhere where apparently Barack Obama did sign Bibles uh, in, in time. Like I, I read that reported. I don't know if it's true or not. And so mm -hmm. um, it certainly didn't make the news because I have no memory of that. And I can't imagine Fox News letting that go. Like if, if it had been filmed of him signing Bibles, I can't imagine Fox News not just running with that for weeks on end. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so um, I don't know why exactly this became such a big thing other than Trump's overt courtship of a certain type of evangelical, right? This 81%, right? Um, right? And so, um, and Nathan, you had actually proposed a question that you think, I think is related to this, Matthew. Um, the the dialectic between three years of Trump support and this particular moment, I think there's definitely mm -hmm. a context yeah. here that makes this stand out for some reason that maybe Obama or Clinton or Bush, W. Bush did sign a Bible, but it didn't really make that big of a splash because of a different context. I wonder, right. Nathan, what are your I, thoughts? I'll, on I'll, that? I'll confess. It surprises me that Obama didn't make a splash. Now, if George HW Bush signed a Bible, I can imagine that just, you know, flying under the radar, no one caring. Right. Yeah. Cause no but, one cared I about mean, him. You know, well, <laughs> until he died, no one even thought about him. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But the point I was trying to make, uh, is that, you know, this, shift in primary identity uh, from, you know, for lack of a better term, sectarian identity to partisan identity, Okay, you know, really comes into a different kind of a form 
in the George W. Bush, Obama, Trump years, right? I mean, certainly Democrats didn't like Republicans and Re- Republicans didn't like Democrats before then. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've seen polling and unfortunately I don't have it in front of me. I just got done teaching a couple classes, um, you know, that indicates that, you know, whereas, you know, a, a certain percentage of, you know, evangelicals will say that, you know, they wouldn't want their child marrying a Catholic. Yeah. A much bigger percentage of Republicans will say they don't want their child marrying a Democrat. Right. Right. So, I mean, there's a sense that, you know, partisan identity has become primary in a different kind of a way over the last, you know, and I'll just give it 20 years than it was before then. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it becomes, uh, you know, and, and it's funny cause I, I've had this conversation with trip fuller. I mean, he won't, he just won't turn loose of the fact that, you know, when he lived in the beach suburbs of Los Angeles, he had five different religions on his block and I said, yeah, but I'll bet their politics were all basically Angelino, weren't they? He says, yes, but there were five different religions and no one was the same color. And I said, did anyone think differently? But anyway, that's that's another story. You know, that reminds me, I don't want to interrupt. I just recently saw a photograph that I, I retweeted and I actually printed out and put it on my door. There's a, a, a coffee shop or someplace that said, we don't care about your religion. We don't care about your gender. We don't care about this. Very kind of liberal. And then right uh, next to it, restrooms for customers only right so there's nice. a way in which you can be like as liberal as you want except for economics mm-hmm. right and so um and yeah that reminds yeah, me yeah. of trips block but go ahead um yeah so i mean you know uh fact of the matter is that you know there is this you know as matt has been laying out uh this abandonment of the connection between personal history and public acceptability right uh, and, you know, I mean, I've heard the excuse used that, well, you know, once Clinton broke the rules, the rules were gone. But that's really not how people talked about it during the George W. Bush years. They they never tired of saying it's nice to have a president who doesn't do those things. Yeah. Right. It really wasn't until Trump became the nominee that all of a sudden evangelicals, broadly speaking, started making excuses for it, even in the primaries. You know, when evangelicals tended to go towards Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, candidates who weren't Trump, you know, I mean, there was still this strong public concern for it. It's when he became the nominee that all of a sudden it didn't matter anymore. Yeah. So it's it, it's rank opportunism, to be sure. Right. And I think because of that rank opportunism and because we've been living in that rank opportunism for three years now, uh, that when this event happens its character derives from those three years as much as it does from anything inherent in the moment, just as the last three years now have this added to them, right? It's that dialectic relationship between the present moment and the history. Yeah. And the fact that Obama also did nothing personal. I mean, he was as upstanding a human being on a personal level as you can imagine serving in public office. I, I mean, I can't, I mean, absolutely. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. There's no dirt on him. Right. And so, right. right. Um, and so th- the fact that, but which again, no one was concerned with until Trump came along. Exactly. Right. But I mean, had he been, had he had some like Clinton esque features to him, right. Um, uh-huh. Then I think they could have still held on to that as an ideal, but because he didn't, there had to be an ideal beyond personal um, behavior kind of. To- well, sure. And it's the strong man ideal, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's the idea that uh, this guy, you know, I mean, to, to misappropriate, uh, I think it was Eisenhower that said this about Batista, maybe, Yeah. you know, and I won't say the full phrase. I'll just use the initials. 
Uh, he's an SOB, but he's our SOB. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I, I think what's really great about when Obama was in office, uh, everyone was talking about how they wished he would be. Well, they all described him as either too weak or a tyrant. Yeah. Uh, but now you have someone like Trump who's praising different tyrants and who's like, yeah, yeah, this this king guy, he really, you know, the mm-hmm, king of mm-hmm. Jordan. I mean, imagine just being able to be in charge. Like, Or what was the that he was talking about? What was the nation he recently said? You know, uh, you know how they dealt with their drug problem? And they killed everyone. Yeah. It was yeah, like, you know, yeah. if only we had that. I was it was like, the no, Philippines, no, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, uh, it might have been somewhere in South America. Mm. I, I can't remember, but well, it was. But take your pick is the point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, oh, okay. So when your guy acts like a tyrant, it's okay because it's really for the right reasons and standing up for freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas you have Obama, who is a constitutional lawyer, who I think, you know, he's a part of this trend towards the expansion of executive power. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but but I felt like he still respected the institutions. Like he never praised um tyrants who were anti democratic or who used uh-huh. harsh measures. Like like yeah, it's almost one of those moments of like can we swear on the podcast? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um can it we just, crap or get can yeah. we crap or get off the pot? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I don't have you to know, beat when, that. When one. it comes <laughs> like you either want a dictator or you wanna defend democracy, but don't pretend like don't don't use these this opportunistic language and poison the public discourse. Yeah, right, what, right. What was really great when I so I went to seminary at Regent University, which was founded by Pat Robertson. Oh right? yeah, uh, and so the in the government school, the law school, um, you know, they tended to lean right. Uh, we had this one. Uh, he had been a former student. He's a worship leader. Travels around now. Uh, Jason Upton, who came in and he was giving a talk to the divinity students. He's like, you know what? I think that there should be a class in the government and law programs where you just look at a picture of Obama and you have to say something nice about him or you fail. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It was one of those things where it was like, you know, he seems like a great family man. Like he seems mm-hmm. like he's willing to communicate and talk with others. Like, um, you know, he, he seems like a nice guy. He just sort of has some different ideas about, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's still a capitalist, like, but mm-hmm. he still believes in higher regulation and, um, right, right. Well, I mean, and, and Matt, I mean, I, I think that contributes to what we talked about with the apotheosis of George H.W. Bush, right? Uh, he had the good luck of dying while Trump was president. Yes. <laughs> because all of a sudden he became this sainted figure for Democrats and Republicans because he wasn't Trump. Yes. As yeah. The, yeah, and we're all sort of longing for the days when people were dignified like that, right? You know, and so right, right. um yeah, that's uh and and even forgetting the recent history of him like grabbing women's butts in, from his wheelchair, right? I mean, it's like yeah. I mean, it's like Yeah. Yeah, uh, anyway, I, I don't want to like trash on HW, but um but the um it's too soon maybe, I guess. But um I think one reason though that you guys are both kind of hinting at that this never would have been an issue before Trump um, is that I think Obama and everybody before Obama, oh, before Trump probably would have understood the optics and cared about the optics of doing something like that. And someone's handler would have said, oh, that that has like serious mm-hmm. rhetorical ramifications. You have to kind of avoid right. doing there's very there's a, a, a an acknowledgement of ceremony um, that Trump mm-hmm. abandons. Right. And I think that maybe the reason we never thought about this before was that nobody ever 
it would have never been filmed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, because, right. I mean, he, he exchanged ceremony for spectacle. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, it it is still an anoptics, but it's anoptics informed not by the Roman Empire as so much of American, you know, iconography was before, but by Fox News. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and one thing before we get uh, moving too far about why this is such an issue beyond why this is such an issue about Trump doing it. We've been talking about it from the perspective of what's going on on the right that makes this um, a thing. But I think the reason it was controversial is also because of something coming from the left. And I think that there's some sense that the left is particularly like like liberal Christians, liberal slash left mm-hmm. Christians sure, um, sure. are like um, trying in some ways to kind of um, take back the faith a little, if you will. And, and, mm-hmm. and there, sure, sure. there's this like. There's this movement to point out the hypocrisy of, of folks like, and they're lucky enough to have someone like Jerry Falwell Jr., who's overly oh, horrible, right? And so he's um, the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, exactly, right? And so, and I think there's there's a search for stories like this, right? And and in some cases, they are going to blow them out of proportion. Like in the in the oh, long sure, run, sure. Trump signed I don't know fifty Bibles in Alabama. Mm-hmm. This really is not that big of an issue, frankly, in the in the grand scheme of things, right? And so we're kind of hung up on the symbolism of, of this um, for political agendas from both the left and the right. I think. Um, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that, that's the joke I often tell is that you know, uh, you know, Howarwazians like me get popular with whatever party doesn't have a guy in the White House. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> that's totally true. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm their guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, one thing I want to kind of like hover a little bit on before we get into the kind of theology of things, and this might be a transition mm-hmm. into that, um, just the nature of celebrity and faith. I, I think that mm-hmm. that is one of the more kind of troubling developments in my lifetime. Like I didn't grow up in non-denominational evangelical land. I grew up in a denomination, the Nazarene denomination, mm-hmm. um, which had its own kind of ecosystem. And I didn't know celebrity preachers outside of that. There were like the the camp meeting guys that you would recognize their name because they always came to the Nazarene camp meetings. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, but that's about as much as it went. And so I kind of, you know, all the, it's been rather new to me to experience the Mark Driscoll's of the world and all that kind of thing. Right. There's this movement in my lifetime of this kind of development of the celebrity pastor type. Right. It coincides uh-huh. somewhat with the development of social media and the Internet. Right. But it's not I don't think exclusive to that as well. And I think that there's something weirdly I, my critique of this is definitely a, a kind of materialist like left critique of it. I think that evangelicals would be against one of the ways in which evangelicals are against like Catholicism, for example, example is the, the authority that is bestowed on someone by kind of the rituals of the Catholic church, you know? And so just Mm. because someone, you know, is the Pope doesn't mean we have to listen to them. We have individual freedom. Right. And so, um, but what they do without that rigid structure, without those liturgical and and, uh, not liturgical, but those uh, governmental structures um, is replace that with a market driven um, system of celebrity. Right. (laughs) And I think Mm -hmm. that is way worse, honestly, to me. And so um, and I think what you I think Trump in some ways is the the perfect outcome of, of, of a culture that has abandoned kind of traditional structures of hierarchy for market driven um, systems in which the, 
the most appealing celebrity rises to the top, right? And, and I think um, the the fact that we're talking about autographs lends itself to examine the role of celebrity in particularly mm-hmm. evangelical circles. And I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. Oh, sure, sure. Matt, why don't you take the first swing at that? Yeah, no, I agree. I think the idea that, uh, you know, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm enough of a Girardian to think that individualism is a myth because ultimately we are uh, collective and we are liturgical beings. We seek those habit-shaping elements to ourselves. So would you then say that uh, human beings require some type of spiritual authority to defer to? I think there's no such thing as secular, frankly. I mean, I think everybody's always worshiping something, right? Sure, yeah. So, yeah. so you're saying this is functionally doing this is functionally sacred in the same way that someone like the pope would be sacred it's just more arbitrary and lends itself to less than ideal forms of it it, de- it depends on the invisible hand of the market right which yeah. which i don't trust i guess <laughs> uh, and, and so yeah sure sure that that i mean that i didn't want to cut you off i was just trying to answer your question yeah no i, I think that's a that's an interesting critique of it that even though we say we're all about individual liberty post-Catholicism, it's amazing. Growing up in Pentecostal churches, a few of them, uh, like there was one pastor whose church I was a part of, he later recanted, but there was definitely a sense where spiritual authority meant that even though you might all be saved and loved by God, some people's work counted more for the kingdom of God because of oh, their, wow. their spiritual authority and position. I actually uh, was, talk- I was talking to a friend recently who made that something along that very comment like, you know, their their opinion or their work or their position counts more in terms of the work of the kingdom. And so and there's a way in which I've I've thought about that because I'm I'm way more egalitarian than that. Mm. And I think there's a way in which pragmatically that mentality can maybe push things along and get things done. Um I yeah, I have deep I have deep, deep problems with it. Um mm-hmm. But it's amazing how, as a part of a Protestant trajectory, it's like, well, if you feel this way about spiritual authority, then you should rejoin the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> because I, your whole your whole premise is that you need this spiritual authority um, who then bestows authority on those who come after. Like I'm a I've been a part of a number of Pentecostal, you know, smaller fellowships and denominations where they end up having an elder board and some head pastors. And, and I've been a part where some of them are, are extremely healthy and wonderful and others that are unhealthy and others that fall in between. But when you start talking about spiritual authority in that way, at what point do you have to go back to the Protestant Reformation and see Martin Luther as the same type of troublemaker that you know, the outspoken critic of the denomination is mm. in another setting, mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. you just have to be all Carl Schmidtian about it and say, it's the exception. And like, you know, ultimately that person's accountable for God, but for still some reason we accept this person's authority, even though it's arbitrary. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's a pretty, I, I, that's a pretty Schmitty thing to say. I have to say, I'm just, uh, I could, yeah. <laughs> I could you're, you're, you're being a real Schmidt head. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it just becomes, it, it's very, I, I've been a part of churches where the culture was very, it was Carl Schmitt's political theology, but in the church, which in a weird way makes sense. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, you're just arbitrarily choosing who the authority is based on your um, sense of what the spirit is saying, which 
which I can kind of get behind. There's, it's like you have individual liberty to put yourself under the authority of another. Sure, I suppose <laughs> that's a good way yeah, to put it. Yeah. yeah. So maybe it's dialectic. I don't know, but um, it also seems weird and arbitrary. Where if you keep digging and uncovering the foundations of how we view our spiritual authority um, in a Protestant world, um, yeah, I. I Although I, I just concur with what you're saying, Danny. I think it's it's an interesting <laughs> phenomenon how arbitrarily we choose our spiritual authorities. Yeah. And, and I'm inclined to historicize it a little bit more recently than the Protestant Reformation. And I think that the rise of cable TV and the religious TV networks uh, and the televangelist figure especially, and then alongside it, kind of the the shift from the, the Jesus movement rock of the 70s into the contemporary Christian music scene of the 80s and 90s. Mm has a fair bit to do with this culture of Christian celebrity uh, simply because you have people who stand to make good money by elevating these, you know, faces uh, to prominence. Right. Uh, And, you know, once that structure's in place, then it's really not too hard for, uh, you know, really in my mind, George W. Bush is the first one who really just runs hard with it to say, you know, I am your guy. Right. Uh, Reagan was at least somewhat reticent, you know, the famous line, what I, um, you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. So that was a little pandering. George H W Bush didn't seem to want much to do with it, but George W Bush, I mean, that's how he got to the white house. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I think that the, the social media era certainly has something to do with it, but I think, you know, a good 20 years before that, the proliferation of, uh, radio stations, the proliferation of uh, TV stations, the proliferation of, you know, a new pop music subculture, uh, at, at the very least, set the table for what came in the Trump era. And I would like, I guess, split the this, the historical difference here uh, between you guys. Um, uh, gosh, this is a long time so ago. So 1723. Uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> 1800, maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So um, um, the, a few, a long time ago, um, Derek Varn and Coyle Neal came on the show mm-hmm. to talk about Mark Knoll's book, Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Um, and, yeah. uh, and that book, I think locates a lot of the later developments that Nathan's talking about in a particularly American um, context in which um, the kind of hierarchical um, organizational structures of state churches uh, had given away to kind of local churches where you no longer assigned a parish to go to. Right. And so right. that opened up the parishes that were successful had this kind of um, alluring preacher, uh, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. that, that is a history book really, I think kind of shows how the philosophical and historic and material um underpinnings of the development of evangelicalism from its onset or from its beginnings um, really does, I think, lay the foundations for the technological things that Nathan's talking about that Mm -hmm. um, lead to the kind of cultural uh, outcome (laughs) that we're suffering through right now. Um, And and, and yeah, and I think that there's it it, from that point, from that point, you can see sort of the reliance on um, marketplace and rhetoric uh, to, uh, Mm -hmm. to determine people's, values and shape those desires right there's a nice little essay by uh, rodney clapp called why the devil takes visa mm. uh that actually was in christianity today i believe in the early 90s maybe uh where where he links specific uh advertising 
uh, strategies with the uh, Big Tent revivals of the 19th century. So that that makes good sense to me. Mm. Matthew, yeah, you to say something. Well, just a uh, uh, preacher as celebrity in the U.S. I mean, that goes back to like George Whitfield, right, where he would stand mm-hmm, sure. on a platform and preach for to thousands of people and you could hear his voice booming from far away. And I mean, you had someone like, you know, Benjamin Franklin, who was sort of agnostic, you know, appreciating someone like Whitfield, who at the very least, you know, if not moved, then was at least entertained by him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, like you said, that gives way to the big tent revival meetings where and don't get me wrong, like I, I love me some good old fashioned Pentecostal camp meetings. Like <laughs> there is a there is a heart language that that resonates with. And yet at the same mm-hmm. time, I see like, you know, this is the thing we're going to now to break up the mundaneness of life. And it yeah. has its own sort of entertainment value. And then you start replacing your 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 music CDs with Christian CDs and you mm-hmm. start going down that whole path. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, there was a, a in the old Christian bookstore music section there was always a chart if you like this popular band try yeah. this this crappy <laughs> band that you will like for 15 minutes and never listen to again but um uh-huh. but uh and, and i guess ultimately what i want to say about that before we move into the theologies just to wrap it up is that when i mean my claim is that when you give over those kinds of shaping decisions about Mm-hmm. based on celebrity you're giving them over to a marketplace right and in the al- the era of reality television the marketplace is going to be kind of uh, maneuvered by someone like Donald Trump and and it's just fascinating to watch as Matthew said earlier on people completely switch their kind of moral ideas about the world based on the celebrity that they're worshiping that's associated with their their idea of what Christianity is right um and so i think that that's i mean to me the danger of the market. I don't trust the market to do development past a certain, I mean, in a certain, to a certain point in history, yes, the, the market and competition and, and capitalism creates necessary things. Right. But at a certain point, the, all the technological people are just developing a 17th version of PowerPoint. Right. You know what I mean? And so, and, and a new app that does something that 12 other apps do. And, and so, um, and, mm-hmm. and just more crap to sell. And so, um, and I think that that's a, a limitation of the, uh, of, of the marketplace. And I think it has really disastrous moral ramifications when you can see how people attach that celebrity status, that, that, religious celebrity status to someone like Donald Trump. Right. And so, um, Mm -hmm. and have him sign their Bible. I think that that's ultimately what's so appalling about the whole thing to me. It is. And and this is my question. This is the, that leads to my next question. Um, I actually don't know that I, I mean, I don't believe, I think that there is anything particularly sacred about the volume that you buy from the bookstore (laughs) that says Mm -hmm. Holy Bible Mm -hmm. on it. Right. The codex itself. Like I, I think, there, and I know there's a big theological debate about this. I know some people do think that there is something sacred about this. And it's some like um, my and uh, like the Muslim tradition, like it's really rude. The Bible, their book cannot sit on the floor. Right. The Quran cannot mm-hmm. sit on the floor. It's elevated on this stand. Right. And there's something holy about the actual object. Right. And in Christianity, I just don't see that working and so but what are your thoughts or maybe you can narrate the history if you don't want to give your opinions about that what are what are the distinction <laughs> what are the distinct belief systems about the sacredness of the text itself like i don't think that donald trump is going to hell because he defaced a sacred object is what i'm saying i mean 
Right. There's several other good reasons. Yeah. If he ends up there, there's <laughs> plenty to choose from. Right. But it won't be because of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, really as, as, as far back as, you know, Plato's Phaedrus, which is where all these conversations always end up looping back to, you've got a sense that writing is, you know, in some sense, a, a magical thing. Right. And then you combine that with the, the great expense of books, you know, in the ancient and medieval worlds really before, um, you know, the 18th century is really when, you know, inexpensive uh, printing becomes enough of a phenomenon that you've got popular novels, right? But before that point, you know, we've got centuries of, of cultural tradition where either the scroll or the codex, you know, is very expensive, very fragile. It has a place in religious rituals. So, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise uh, that it takes on a sort of talismanic character in, you know, the the phenomenology of our lives, right? Uh, and I think that, you know, 300 years isn't quite long enough to get over that, so to speak, right? You yeah. know, it is in our bones in a way that sometimes we don't recognize. And I'm speaking of myself here. Uh, you know, I, I it, it's funny because, I mean, you know, if, uh, if a book falls off my shelf here in my office, you know, I'll kick it out of the way, you know, and say I'll pick it up later. I'll do that with a Bible, but I feel bad about it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, in, in ways that I can't really, you know, um, deal with rationally. Uh, but you know, it's, it's still a phenomenon. And what's interesting to me is that, uh, we have other artifacts in which the actual text of the English Bible is printed that we don't have that reaction for, to. Right. So, I mean, for instance, I, I teach at a, an evangelical college here, and it's just not uncommon at all for, um, you know, people to print Bible verses on their, you know, flyers for whatever events coming. Right. Mm. And it's usually something that's thematically related to the event. It makes good sense. But people will rip those off the wall when the event's over, throw them in the trash and not think twice about it. Right. Sure. So it's not the text of the Bible. That's the sacred object. It really is the codex. Right. Wow. Uh, and, and even, you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of our students, you know, don't identify as Christians, but the ones who do still retain that sense of the Bible as the sacred object, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if I would just wear my, you know, 19th century colonialist, you know, enlightenment hat, uh, I would say that this is just taboo, this is superstition, this is, you know, so on and so forth. But I, I, I do want to historicize it a little bit more deeply than that. So I guess I want to I want to shoot past Emmanuel Kant and get to Clifford Geertz. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Matt, I mean, what, what's your sense? I mean, you know, uh, are, are we, uh, are we superstitious savages well, for having sacred Bibles? Let me step in right real quick and ask a follow-up question before Matt goes. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Um, those, those students who do see the Bible as sacred, they're probably more likely to use highlighters and, and things in their Bible, right? Than, than people who don't see the Bible as sacred, certainly, certainly. right? And so yeah. isn't that interesting, right? <laughs> and so, well, um, but here's the thing, because they consider it a sacred object that is also part of their own internal lives, yeah. it makes sense that their own mark is upon it, yeah. right? But on the other hand, they would not throw it, they would not drop it on the floor, they would not kick it, so on and so forth, right? Yes. But those highlighters, are in some sense adding code, if you will, to this object that is, and I, I keep going back to the word dialectic today, but I mean, yeah. it really is dialectically involved with their own identity, right? Yeah. It is their Bible. It's almost got this um, 
oh, kind of like from the Jewish tradition of commentary. Um, you sort of add on to the scripture with the commentary of the scripture, and then there's, or the commonplace book of the Renaissance or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's commentary on the commentary, and, and sure, as it goes on sure. through, right? And so, yeah, no. And so, I I don't think it's a bad practice. I'm just sort of posing the question, Matthew. I interrupted though. Um, go right ahead. No, I mean when I was looking over this question, I couldn't help but think about conversations about inerrancy. Which, for the record, I I don't believe in inerrancy. Like, I don't think it's, you can you can't say much more about scripture than that it's inspired, okay, um, in some sort of sacred God given way, um, I, and that should be enough, I would add. Yeah, because I mean, you start talking about inerrancy, you're talking about you know, you have to have this conflict between the rigorous methods of science and between what the Bible says, and you're just making things difficult for people and for them to come mm-hmm. to faith if you're putting those roadblocks in their way. Just a little rant on the side. Um, <laughs> That's what the show's and, about. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> yeah. Augustine and Wesley both agree with me, so I think <laughs> right, I've right. covered. I think I've covered the two sources. I think I cover all sources. The only thing I haven't covered there is orthodoxy, but that co- covers Catholicism. And it covers. It that, covers the both streams of Protestant thought. And, that's an even better mm-hmm. appeal to authority than Ed Stetzer. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead. I, I do find it interesting that in debates about inerrancy like what's actually inerrant are the are the documents we don't have and have no access to because it's that the originals were inerrant and perfect mm-hmm. so anything we get after that is imperfect but mm-hmm. it reflects back upon something that was perfect um which brings up some interesting questions about okay then like you said can this code actually be sacred since it's not it's not the thing that we think is actually inerrant it's the thing of which it's a copy of a, as Bart Ehrman says, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah. Um, I do think to the issue of how we experience the Bible as sacred, uh, that ends up being like a phenomenology of re- religion issue. Mm-hmm. Like what Absolutely. is our experience of the sacred on the inside where as we're reading our Bible to really believe that this is one of the more helpful ways of either communing with God or having some, you know, when you're in, when you're engaging in contemplative prayer of any kind and you're engaging in any sort of spiritual discipline that the Bible is sort of this norming norm of Christian life and practice. And so Mm -hmm. as you're reading it, there is a sense in which from the inside of your own religious experience, um, you know, there's an intentionality, uh, there's an intentionality on your end that connects with what you perceive as sacred in the text. And so, yes, you might write it up as a reverent practice, but it's when you start to debase it and treat it as mundane and profane that Mm. it violates what you have taken to be your sacred experience with it. And so um, it's sort of like how certain places for some people are sacred. Like I had a professor who would talk about how whenever he would go down to a dock, he lived by a lake and he would say, whenever I go down to this dock is when I feel closest to God and feel like I feel promptings and leadings from God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, this is, this is Eliade, right? This is you encounter a thing as uh, something shows itself to be sacred. Sure. Um, and I don't think you can, you can get to the bottom of rationalizing that, like, because the nature of the sacred is that it appears to be sacred. Um, and that's sort of enough. Like, and that's where we get into other enlightenment debates between revelation and reason. Like, uh, whatever else can be said about your encounter with these bounded copies of the text, you then um, 
those things show themselves to be sacred as you engage them if you're a religious believer. And as mm-hmm. such, you're going to associate the sacred with them no matter whether or not you can rationalize and get to the bottom of how and why it's sacred. Yeah. What matters mm-hmm. is that it has appeared to be sacred. Yeah. I um, And I have to say, I think I think there's an argument to be made. Maybe I'm this. I'm being hyperbolic here, but I think there's an ar- <laughs> argument to be made that Donald Trump signing a copy of whatever the King James version of the Bible in Alabama is probably less profane than sticking a Bible verse on a Thomas Kincaid painting. Um, I, I have to <laughs> that's sort of my uh, um, uh, in terms of using the text or and abusing mm-hmm. the text. I that's sort of, I think there's a case to be made, if nothing else. And 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 my good friend and uh, and pastor, a former pastor, Yuri Amari, he chimed in and is joking. Way on that conversation with a screenshot of his uh, of his iPhone with the Bible app, and he signed Yuri over the Bible app, and so just nice. a sort of way to kind of uh, uh, bring bring a little light to the subject, and and yeah, and if Donald Trump signing the front cover of a Bible is a profane act, then maybe that was too. I think is sort of his point, right? And so, um, and so I think we're talking less about actual heresy than of the scripture itself than something descriptive about the cultures of Christianity. Okay. When we're talking about the controversy Mm -hmm. surround around Donald Trump signing these Bibles. Right. And so um, that's kind of the only point I wanted to kind of. Right. And and really the phenomenon is less heresy and more sacrilege. Okay. Yeah. It's the idea that, you know, there is a sacred object or a sacred place that someone is somehow violating by a certain act. Right. So again, I, I just want to make that technical distinction because heresy tends to be a false teaching, yeah. whereas sacrilege is a an act of violence against the sacred site or the sacred object. Yes, exactly. I, I totally concur. Yeah, and so yeah, I just want to. I, I think that this whole situation just kind of reveals a lot of really interesting features about. Mm-hmm. the culture of Christianity of, 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 a, of a type of Christianity in America. Right. And, and the fact that that is located in the South is probably correlates in some Venn diagram somewhere with Donald Trump's support among evangelicals. Right. And so, I mean, I, I wonder if mm-hmm. there's some sort of correlation there. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there, as we talk about the ramifications of the Trump pres- presidency for American Christianity, I think this situation while probably is overblown um, and pro- not actually meaningful in a sacrilegical, sacrilegious sort of way, um, <laughs> it, it is also revelatory about some aspect of the culture, and I think it's worth considering. Right. Um, I, I, you guys have here, other here, things to here's add. Here's just yeah. a little question. Just, to, just I'm just going to be a booger here. <laughs> is you know, might it be healthy that we do have a sense of sacrilege when this happens? In other words, you know, have we become so blasé about all of the objects in our life because they're all mass produced and they are all disposable that there might be something healthy about the sort of uh, and I'm going to use this phrase and I, I know it's been appropriated in other spheres for evil, but a sort of gag reflex we have when Donald Trump signs a Bible. I mean, my, my sense is that I, you know, I wouldn't make a, a syllogism about it, but I have a hunch that that might be a sign that there's still some life left in us. I, I would agree with that. Um, honestly, I, I totally, I think you're totally right. And which is why I'm doing the show about it. Right. I mean, honestly, uh-huh, uh-huh. because I do think while I, there's like two levels, right there, there's a way that it's healthy to be offended by something like that while recognizing what it is, recognizing that it is what it is, I guess, you know what I'm saying? Right, this right. is not, 
this is not the same as burning a book, right? Um, this is doing something different, but it is um, offensive enough to a core aspect of the faith that it's worth mm-hmm. considering, I think, um, and actually taking the time to critique it, which is what criticism is for, I think, right? And so mm-hmm. it is to kind of uh, maintain the connection between the present and the past and direct the direction of the future a little bit. And so, yeah, no, I, I would totally agree with that. Um, Matt, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think um, on the one hand, it seems like you have these, in terms of the sacred and profane, I've just been thinking about this as, uh, I've been thinking about how some things appear sacred or profane to other people. I understand why progressives who, especially who are focusing more on um, different social justice issues about immigration and the poor and healthcare and things like that, would see in President Trump someone who's violating what they take to be the key essential elements to Jesus's message. So, you know, the Matthew 25 and all that mm-hmm. and saying, OK, you have this profane, hypocritical person signing this sacred text that includes the words of jesus so you're 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 taint you're tainting the sacred of the profane mm-hmm. and you see how um you know conservatives would see trump as being sacred in as much as he's on their side and we all tend to sort of sacralize our own politics and like mm-hmm. the sacred move the sacred migrates kavanaugh you know william kavanaugh the sacred migrates from the church to the government or the church to the state. So they see Trump as more on the sacred side because, um, he, uh, is, uh, he's anti-abortion or pro-life, whatever word you want to use there. Um, but weirdly enough, they also see low taxes and these small government as these other essentially Christian things, which are actually just differences in policy and mm-hmm. i don't think god cares whether we have regulated government or unregulated <laughs> government um and so i do think he cares whether or not we care for the less fortunate like i do think that that is true and i don't think he cares whether it's a government program or private charity that's a side that's a tangent we don't need to talk about that yeah i, I think a bigger the bigger issue here is the association of um our nationalist politics or even just our state politics um with um with christianity and having that uh having that civic religion relationship between the church and the state um that that's for me one of the bigger problems here is that why would we have this politician sign the bible because in the end for me i'm anabaptist howarwasian enough we could say Mm -hmm. that I, I just don't think that's like you have to you know or cornell west like you have to maintain a healthy skepticism and distance from the government itself so you can keep speaking truth to power Mm -hmm. because the prophetic witness of 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 the church or we could say religion and general christian religion in general is that it always has to maintain some separation between itself uh between itself and political power Mm -hmm. like if you're on the president's you know council of faith leaders like you know you're already being corrupted by getting inside of that situation Mm. Like I like I get why you think you'd be doing a pragmatic good, but we need to be more careful about stuff like that and really realize that you know it's the Tony Campolo turds and ice cream thing. Like, like if you mix turds and ice cream, the turds are fine, but you've ruined the ice cream. <laughs> like Christians in the U.S. are not cautious enough when it comes to political power. Yeah. Like they're they're mm. in getting prone to partisanship, they don't realize how they become 
just one more voting block that the political party will manipulate. Mm-hmm. And I think right, that's right. That's that's what disturbs me more about um, uh, evangelicals having Trump sign Bibles in the South that it represents something about how they're viewing their Christianity and their their politics, their state politics. Yeah, um, I totally agree with that. And honestly, I feel like one reason to push back on this issue is because there are people, I mean, this was the accusation levy against me for poking fun at it on my Facebook page, was that <laughs> I was poking fun at Christians because Christians like Donald Trump, because Christians like Donald Trump, right? And so I, the whole premise that Christians should or could, can like Donald Trump is, is what I'm sort of po- poking fun at or poking back at, right? And I think when we don't ask these questions, people can just fall into these bizarre assumptions, right? And and on, in some ways, I think there's a corollary um, question to be asked. I mean, this is maybe this is a different question, but I think it's somewhere it's somewhere in the Venn diagram um, about <laughs> having flags in church, right? And so I think mm-hmm, there, there's sure. I think there's a there's a relationship there that's utterly offensive and bizarre to me, and yet utterly un questioned for some other people, right? And to actually stand up and say the Pledge of Allegiance in church is a thing that is just normal and natural because, you know, because Christian nationalism, right? And so, and if people don't, and it's not, Christianity isn't going to die because there's a flag in the church, um, but it's still something we have to, like, push back on. There's there is better and worse theology yes. and that is worse theology. <laughs> yes. That's a great way to put <laughs> no. it. Yes. Well, which, which, which I feel like, you know, you know, any person, you know, this is really hard because everyone wants to jump to the Hitler comparison. You know, <laughs> if, if, if you meet a, pr- a presidential candidate or uh, a presidential office holder in person, like chances are like, you're probably going to be able to have a conversation with them and see them as human. Yeah. And I think, you know, I could do that. I, I feel like I, I could, like if I ever, had a chance to, to meet the president and I wasn't just in all of the Oval Office because apparently that happens when you're there like you're kind of you kind of get dumbstruck it's sort of like the same thing when you get dumbstruck by celebrities but yeah you know it'd be, it would be one of those things where I would tell him um, I would just say you know I don't know anything about the genuineness of your faith all I can see are you know your actions and the people you've had surround you've surrounded yourself with and I would just say like I think it's a very flawed if like if you are a christian as you claim to be it's a very flawed understanding of what it means to be a christian and it's a very Mm -hmm. flawed form of of theology um and i i'd at least want to speak that truth to him like you know i'm sure we could get along and we could you know have a cup of coffee and we could talk or maybe he would talk and i would listen i don't know (laughs) again he's he's portrayed himself a certain way um you know, it's, this is that, you know, practice, like say one good thing about him. I'm sure I have enough of a dark and twisted sense of humor where I'm sure he's, he would say something that would be awkward or weird, but it would still be funny. And I'm sure, I'm sure we could get along, but, um, well, everyone loved him on the apprentice, right. And just as, so as Donald Trump, the the firing CEO, he was popular. It's Donald Trump as the <laughs> religious celebrity politician. He's, he runs into trouble. So, um, guys, I this was a great idea. Um, I <laughs> yeah, I learned so much, and and I really really appreciate you guys coming on to the show. Any last words that you need to get out before we, we close this thing up? And I have a meeting with students. 
nope i think this is interesting yeah um i like i said i really did um not want to make this like an open and shut case i think there's a lot more questions um than answers uh, about this and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the way i prefer things honestly and, and i think that yeah <laughs> go ahead i do want to add one thing i i, I want to recognize because someone's going to say this i also recognize i'd have the privilege to have that conversation with trump and not be like uh, I, I recognize I have a certain amount of positionality yeah. that would afford me that. So I realize, like, not every person of color, not every LGBT person, not every like. I realize, like, I want to throw that out there too because someone's going to be like, "He's only think he's not thinking about no, no." I know, <laughs> I know, like cisgender, white, heterosexual, Christian male. Like, I get yeah. it. I can do things that others can't. Totally yeah. understand. That's why. That's <laughs> why we leave cracking eggs on people's heads on the table time, time, time. So when sometimes it's necessary, right? And so um, anyway, well, guys, I, I really do appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Those of you who are listening, if you have any uh, feedback, if you have any thoughts to add to what we've talked about, if you have any kind of uh, theologians or whatever, or, or personal experiences with autographs uh, that you want to share, go to the Facebook page and, and leave a comment on the show notes link there go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com to find everything that we do and uh, by all means make sure you subscribe to the show on whatever podcatcher you actually listen to that helps more people find us leave a review does even better Um, go to pop culture and theology to read cool stuff that matt's responsible for and go to christianhumanist.org to find out what nathan's doing and uh and i have a blessed day don't sign any bibles 